Jesus tells her the hour is fast coming when the place of worship will be inconsequential because God is spirit and any place can become a holy place, a thin place, even this place. And that's our hope, that as we engage with these meditations, this place might become a thin place. Welcome to a Thin Place Podcast with Dr. Larry Taylor. If you'll indulge me a bit, I'd like to tell you one of my very favorite things to do. My eyes pop open early every morning, very early, like 4 a.m. to 4.30 early. I'm not sure why this has been a thing for me for many years. Maybe it was getting up early to give my wife a break from comforting a restless baby. I'm not sure, but once I discovered the early morning quiet, once it became a habit, it stuck. I actually set my clock now so that I don't miss this time each morning. My very favorite time of year for this little ritual is wintertime. We've already set our clocks back an hour, and I love this not because I get an additional hour of sleep, but because it gives me an additional hour of morning darkness. I know, I know, I'm weird. The house is cold. I start a fire in the fireplace. I pour a cup of coffee, and I find my chair and prop up my feet. My moleskin journal is always there to my right, along with my favorite pen. My music of choice for mornings during this season is George Winston's December. I've listened to it since 1982 when I bought my first copy of it on vinyl and I recorded it to a cassette tape so that I could play it on my Walkman during late night or early morning study sessions for my final exams in college. It's actually what is playing as I type out this opening comment for this third Sunday of Advent, some 38 years later. My wife has the entire house tastefully, thoughtfully, and wonderfully decorated. Holiday greens and reds, garlands, wreaths and candles, even mugs and hand towels in the kitchen and place settings on the dining room table set a mindful tone that keeps my focus on the deeper meaning of the season rather than the obscenity of consumption. A few of these decorations are new, but most are decorations that have accumulated over the years of family experiences, wonderful times, trying times, but they are home. The only thing that would make this morning better would be my entire family home under this roof, sleeping soundly in their rooms as I sit here near the Christmas tree in front of the fire. It's a spiritual place for me, very conducive to my preferred practice and awareness of God. It's my home. Home Before Winter is the sermon for this week. It's a meditation on winter spirituality. I believe this is ultimately why this time of mourning is special to me and has been for most of my life. It was a meaningful meditation for me during this season. I hope it's a bit cool or even cold where you are when you hear this. That's just my preference. Here's Dr. Taylor, 
home before winter. A reading from the second letter to Timothy, chapter 4. Paul is near the end of his life, and he writes, I am already on the point of being sacrificed. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful in serving me. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Do your best to come before winter. The time of winter solstice is very near. At the dying of the year, most of us scarcely take note it comes so close to Christmas. But December 22nd, more or less, finds the earth at its sharpest slant to the sun. And William Cullen Bryant wrote, the suns grow meek, and the meek suns grow brief, and the year smiles as it draws near its death. Solstice comes from a verb meaning to come to a stop. The days grow shorter, the nights longer, the body adjusts, life slows down in colder climes, the rivers freeze, the winds may howl, and winter arrives. John Donne wrote, the whole world's sap is sunk. The Apostle Paul knew that, of course. He understood winter, and he obviously sensed the approach of winter when he wrote young Timothy, asking him to join him soon in Rome and to mind the coming season. It reads like an urgent appeal. Many people, of course, just do not like winter. We're all spoiled by the warmth of summer climes and southerly flows off the Gulf, sometimes even in December. Jamaica Kincaid lives in Vermont, and she dreads to see the winter come. She's a gardener, and she laments at what happens to her garden in the winter. She says that when she hears that the first frost is due, she takes it personally as if it's something happening only to her. Not long ago, I was singing the praises of winter as my daughter-in-law listened politely. I mentioned how much I enjoy the brisk and bracing weather of this season, and at length she commented quietly, you're weird. 
the year begins and ends in winter. There are deadlines this time of year that have to be respected. Church historian Martin Marty comments that the winter solstice means the end of illusion. The truth is here, and we have to face its urgency because for all of us, it's a time toward home. While winter is not everyone's favorite season, some people are fond of it, and all of us can learn from it. The time of festive birth is celebrated at the beginning of winter, the death of the child, the birth of the child who rises from winter only to die and rise again in spring. Winter becomes the season of God's hospitality. John Buchanan, editor of the Christian Century, wrote in a recent issue, my gratitude for Advent has deepened across the years. I welcome the shorter days and love the way the angled light of early December makes everything look different. It seems to transform the world into a more promising place. Details are softer, pastels brighter. Donald Hall lives in his family's ancestral farmhouse in rural New Hampshire. And he writes movingly about the pewter light of winter that pours off the snow and fills the rooms of his rambling country house in the middle of a winter's night. And he says, some of us are just darkness lovers, partly tuber and partly bare. We don't dislike the early and late daylight of June, whippoorwill's gray time, but we cherish the gradually increasing dark of November in which we wrap ourselves for winter. Novelist John Updike says, the cold of winter sets his brain to percolating, encouraging intellectual activity. He likes winter, he says, because it locks him indoors with his books and his word processor and his own clear and brittle thoughts. And he also says that winter's cold has the value of reminding all of us that the universe is cold, black space and that sunshine is a local condition. Have you ever noticed how it's never quite as cold as it used to be in memories past? My grandfather could tell about the White River freezing over at Batesville, Arkansas, so solid that he saw wagons and teams of mules drive across it. My parents spoke of ice skaters on the ponds of Lakewood in North Little Rock. Winter is forever the minority season, especially in our part of the world. Dorothy Wordsworth wrote, Give winter all the glory you can, because summer will make its own way and speak its own praises. Patricia Hampel grew up in Minnesota. If you've ever listened to Garrison Keeler on public radio, you know how Minnesotans love their winter. Pat Hampel says that in the home where she grew up, the children were instructed never to speak against winter. The cold was their pride. 
She says, winter seemed to partake of religion in a way no other season did. Nonetheless, winter can still be a playful time. I have priceless memories of sledding down our backyard hill in Tennessee in the snow with our children. We'd sled at night in the gauzy winter light and all the world seemed fresh and new. Winter can be playful. Who could lightly dismiss the image of Michelangelo coming into the courtyard of the Medici one winter day to build a snowman? Wouldn't you like to have seen that? Or Dylan Thomas' lyrical recollection of Christmas in Wales with dinners and cats and snow and ice. Our Ezra Keats' story of little Peter, young Peter, who makes and smuggles a snowball into his comfortable warm house only to discover next morning that it's gone. Winter is the perfect parable of all that comes and goes and fades and changes. In its most literal, savage expressions, it is a singular season with urgent reminders carried on its winds. No one could fail to recognize this season when Jane Kenyon says, Yellow leaves are none or few do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. With literal winter as a baseline, firm in everyone's experience, Martin Marty goes a step further. He speaks of winter as a season of the heart. No one, he says, escapes the chill in the heart which knows no special season. John Crow Ransom makes the connection between winter as season and winter as season of the heart. Two evils, monstrous, either one apart, possessed me and were long and loath at going. A cry of absence, absence in the heart. And in the wood, the furious winter blowing. Marty notes that most spirituality today is what he calls summary spirituality. We're all familiar with it. It's seen in the electronic church, the church of the frozen smile. It's warm, light, folksy, self-assured, and always victorious. But Marty says not every believer can move easily into the rhythms of country and Western Christianity with its foot-stomping exuberant styles. Many people experience what he calls a wintry spirituality. For centuries, the wintry type of spirituality was honored in the church. You can hear the sound of it at five o'clock this afternoon in this sanctuary when our ensemble performs Benjamin Britten's Ceremony of Carols. In part, wintry spirituality takes inspiration from the book of Psalms. Only about a third of the Psalms are upbeat and summary, 
More than half of them are wintry, asking hard questions and weighing difficult realities. Wintry spirituality is more reserved, less driven by enthusiasms. It knows the chill of absence and often feels out of place in the gathering of summary types. For some people, it's a matter of personality, but others feel alienated from the charismatic sunshine gathering. And church historian Marty says that for such people, the spiritual life has been nickeled and dimed to death and virtually disappears as in a freezing. In the Middle Ages, wintry spirituality went by the name Acedia. It referred to people's inability to shake the demon of noonday. It was also called the dark night of the soul, the cloud of unknowing, and the negative way to God. And Martin Marty makes his plea that there be no war between different spiritual types. No logical, biblical, or traditional reasons exist to separate summary spirituality from wintry spirituality. And since summary spirituality is by far the dominant type, Marty pleads for thoughtful Christians to rediscover the wintry sort which treats winter as a metaphor of the heart and soul. Philip Simmons was only 35 years old when he learned that he had Lou Gehrig's disease. In his recent book, Learning to Fall, Simmons traces his own slow decline and then meditates on it. He says that as a season of the Spirit, winter can seize us at any time of year. And when it does, if we have the courage to embrace the emptiness, we may actually experience the blessings of the wintry mind. Wallace Stevens wrote, One must have a mind of winter to regard the frost and the boughs of the pine trees crusted with snow and have been cold a long time to behold the junipers shagged with ice, the spruces rough in the distant glitter of the January sun and not to think of any misery in the sound of the wind. One must have a mind of winter. But winter's more than a season of the year and more than just a metaphor of a certain spiritual type. It's also a season of life. For some, it's the winter of their discontent because health issues crowd out everything else. Shakespeare's Hamlet says, "'Tis bitter cold and I am sick. Some feel that Robert Browning's promise of the end of life, for which the first was made, is not all it's cracked up to be. It is so unfortunately true that what Mother Nature giveth, Father Time taketh away. What came easily for us in the fall may be more difficult in the winter. 
The winter of our life becomes the season by which we truly know ourselves. The sap falls, the true color of the leaves comes through brilliantly and briefly, and then we are bare against the heavens. Paul must have felt something like that. All alone in his prison cell in Rome, the nights becoming colder. And he must have suspected that he was near the end of his long missionary career. The time of my departure has come, he writes Timothy. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Paul knew. He knew the winter solstice was near. And there's an urgency in his word. Winter as a season of life may be a time of remembrance. Have you ever noticed how memories can embrace us in the winter like a thorn in the heart and bring both laughter and tears to our eyes almost simultaneously? Fred Craddock observes that people live off of memory through long, lonely winters. The maturity that comes with rich, full life experience may also crown our winter days. I've seen it so in some of you. I find it almost irresistible. Some of you have taught me that when there is no winter, there can be no spring. When Advent does not charm our hearts, the inevitable Lent to come falls on hopeless soil. The clearing needs the forest, winter explains summer, and December's solstice harbors the coming spring. It's a time toward home, all right. Philip Simmons understands that. As a young man with Lou Gehrig's disease, he found himself in winter prematurely. But there is nothing premature or immature about his reflections on winter and home. He says that on some level, all religious feeling begins with the sense that our true home lies somewhere else. He writes, we seek continually to return home. Winter reminds us of our need for something beyond the desolation. Wordsworth named that something. He spoke of God, who is our home. Jane Kenyon writes, The sun, bright but not warm, has gone behind the hill. Chill, or the fear of chill, sends me hurrying home. We're near the winter solstice. It's a time toward home. It was doubtless winter that the Apostle Paul had on his mind when he wrote his young friend Timothy. Paul's final letter to this his dearest friend whom he had left in charge of his church in far-off Ephesus. Paul himself is now in prison in Rome. He tells Timothy that he wants him to come be with him. He is to stop off at Troas, 
on the way and pick up Paul's books. Also, he says, bring my cloak because winter is approaching and I'll need it here in prison against the cold. But most of all, Paul wants Timothy to bring himself. Do your best to come to me, he writes. Do your best to come before winter. Clarence McCartney had this marvelous sermon that he preached in his church every fall on this very text. McCartney asked the question, why before winter? And he answers, because Paul knew that when winter set in, the season for navigation on the Mediterranean shut down. It became dangerous for ships to venture out onto the open sea. If Timothy waits until winter, he'll have to wait until spring. And Paul has a premonition that he won't last until spring. And so the coming of winter injected the note of urgency as it always does. The solstice is near. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, so seize the day. The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen, says the psalmist. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, Paul writes elsewhere. And Clarence McCartney says we'd like to think that Timothy didn't wait a single day after that letter from Paul reached him at Ephesus, but that he started at once for Troas, where he picked up the books and the old cloak in the house of Carpus, then sailed past Samothrace to Neapolis, and thence traveled by the Ignatian Way across the plains to Philippi and through Macedonia to the Adriatic where he took a ship to Brundisium and then at last went up the Appian Way to Rome. And there he found Paul in his prison cell and read to him from the Old Testament and wrote his last letters and walked with him to the place of execution near the pyramids of Cestius and saw Paul receive the crown of glory. McCartney would say, it's before winter or never. Some things will never be unless they're done before winter. And he concludes that powerful sermon with the plea, come before winter, come before the haze of Indian summer has faded from the fields. Come before the wind strips the leaves from the trees and sends them whirling. Come before the snow lies deep on the uplands and the middle meadow brook is turned to ice. Come before the heart is cold. Come before desire has failed. Come before life is over and your probation ended and you stand before God to give an account. Come before winter. It's just a week or so away now. The winter solstice. The season's getting broad and deep. It's already the third Sunday of Advent. It's a time toward home. Will you be home before winter? 
you do remember where home is, don't you? Let's pray. During the months of this year, Lord, we have all wandered away from home in one way or another, at one time or another. We lose sight of home. Even the dream and the hope sometimes fade on us. But during this season, with the approach of winter, somehow we hear the call again the call to come home, the call to return. And we pray that this season we might hear and answer that call, that we might let the full and rich spirit of this glorious season flood our spirits, melt our hearts, and bring us back all for the sake of Jesus himself. Amen. One of my father-in-law's sayings was, it's time to put our good clothes on. He would drop this as we were pulling into Sunday morning church. And what he meant was that it was time to put on a proper face for the folk in the church house. Those honest conversations that we were just having, those conversations that all of us have when we're with our close family and we're speaking our minds openly. You know, those real conversations only for our ears. Those that are not really for public consumption. Putting on our good clothes reminded us that this is not the place to be ourselves. So let's all play our expected roles. The Church of the Frozen Smile was not the place for such talk, it seems. People didn't want to hear it, and we for sure weren't ready to reveal it in this place. It was time to put on our good clothes and play the part. Often churches I've attended seem to be perpetually bathed in that summery spirituality that Larry refers to. I believe a real spiritual problem we in the Western world have is that we consume our religion more than we practice it. We want that warm, light, folksy, self-assured, and always victorious religion. Barbara Brown Taylor has written, Spirituality is the active pursuit of the God you didn't make up. For me, at least, there is something about winter spirituality that lends itself to this type of pursuit. The pursuit of the God that I didn't make up. The God that knows me behind that good clothes role that I often play. The me in my worn jeans and old sweatshirt sitting in my chair on a cold winter morning. You know, at home. 
You remember where home is, don't you? I hope you've all enjoyed this edition of a Thin Place podcast. If you have any suggestions or comments, ideas, please send them to thinplacepodcast at gmail.com. It's available to stream on Podbean, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, and Amazon. Please rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice and share it with your social media platforms. I spoke with an old friend this week who told me of people he has shared these with who have been moved by these meditations. As always, I'm so thankful for Larry and Linda and for what they have meant to so many of us throughout the years. Next week for our fourth weekend of Advent, a lump in the throat on a thin place with Dr. Larry Taylor. And until next time, I'm Mike Young. And from my family to yours, happy holidays, grace, and peace.